It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, can anyone be a writer? Requires no training, no special equipment. It is the most democratic form that a novel doesn't really demand in the way that the other arts do. The author, Martin Amis, published his first novel in 1973, when he was in his mid-twenties. Since then, he's written 13 other novels, two collections of stories and eight works of non-fiction. The Economist has called him the most exciting living British writer for anyone concerned with vivid prose. His new book, Inside Story, is a novel in inverted commas, but it's also a portrait of his life and friendships. And here's how it begins. Welcome. Do step on in. This is a pleasure and a privilege. Let me help you with that. I'll just take your coat and hang it up here. Oh, and incidentally, that's the way to the bathroom. Sit on the sofa, why don't you? Then you can control your distance from the fire. Martin Amos is a British writer, but he's lived in the US for almost a decade. Does he think America, his home today, can still be a sanctuary for writers or for others? Where I live in Brooklyn, I have a clear view of the Statue of Liberty. And on some mornings, she looks the beacon welcoming you to a glorious idea. And then other mornings, when the mist comes, when you can't really see her very clearly, she does look like the stub of a civilization. And a crunch question, does a master of the literary form use American English day-to-day or the old British variety? Martin Amos, welcome to The Economist Asks. It's a pleasure to be here. You left London for New York in 2011 to live there. New York has been a COVID-19 hotspot, of course, since the outbreak. Did you ever consider leaving Brooklyn? Well, we, yeah, we immediately left for Long Island um, and we're in East Hampton now. And we, we, we creep back into New York um, every couple of weeks. So life doesn't change that much. Uh, out here. And in New York, everyone's being very good and responsible. It's not like it would be in Texas. Um, People don't come and cough in your face and wrench your mask off. I mean, it's still all a mystery to me. And it's it's a Clive James's Barry Manilow law that uh, everyone you know thinks Trump is um, absolutely terrible but everyone you don't know thinks he's great. And that is, that is in itself disorientating. Do you think that division that you refer to there is historic, but in a way crystallised or gelling around the election of Donald Trump and the, the 
reaction to it, it poses different questions for, for writers in the American tradition as to what they focus on and maybe what they miss. Well, the writers, the position of writers in America is actually rather more exalted than it is in England. In, in that America, when it was forming, uh, subliminally accepted that the writers would play a part in telling the people who they were and, and answering the question, is America just a collection of Italians and Jews and Europe, you know, Brits and Germans, etc., or is it a country with, a, with its own soul and psyche? People accepted that the writers would play a part in answering that question, whereas no one's going to tell anyone in, in, in England what they are. They've been around for a millennium, and not just 250 years. Writers are privileged anyway, and they must, must be the least inconvenienced people on earth because of the pandemic, because their life hasn't changed. Do, do you feel that as a writer? Yeah. The writer is the kind of species who can live with this probably better than most. Yeah, because, because your life is based on solitude and not on community. That's what we're all missing, is, is society, high, low, and in general. That thing called society is just withdrawn for the time being. But writers are withdrawn from society anyway, so it's not as if I, I'm used to a noisy office where everyone is breathing in each other's faces. I'm not. The main character in Inside Story, which you've just published, is called Martin Amos. I've come across him before, I think, a couple of times. You have described the book as higher autobiography. The, the TLS said it's a, a novel that hugs the shores of author's own biography. What kind of journey is it to write higher autobiography? Because I got the impression when you reflected on it through other writers, it wasn't necessarily a school that you felt very attracted to. I've already written a memoir 20 years ago, and that was a memoir, pure and simple. And that was very easy to write, as other novelist friends of mine who've written autobiographies, uh, like Salman Rushdie, uh, we, uh, he and I agreed that it comes at about twice the rate of fiction. I thought, I, well, I certainly knew I couldn't do that again. I couldn't disguise a memoir and, and just redo it. Um, so I thought uh, this will be a novel which will give me certain freedoms, a little more imaginative space. Um, and uh, it didn't come easily. It took me, in the end, about six years to write. And, and it came at about 100 pages a year, which is what the usual rate for fiction. That's interesting. I think the, the layman's assumption might be that it comes quicker because you could base it in experience and then sort of extend beyond the experience. But you don't find it comes any quicker than putting together a completely fictitious cast of characters. I suppose it must come a, a little bit quicker because you don't, you don't have to invent a plot or a storyline or indeed characters because they're all laid before you. What you have to do is combine them as you would in a, a regular novel, given those limitations. 
The most serious limitation, I don't expect this to resonate much, but um, if you're writing what I would stubbornly call an art novel, um, where it's made up and patterned and, um, and all the usual techniques of fiction, the subconscious is your friend and plays a, a key role in the whole thing, in that you rely on the subconscious to solve certain difficulties for you. And there's very little for the subconscious to do when you're writing about things that actually happened and about people who actually existed. You said this was possibly or even probably your last big novel, which in some ways surprised me. Maybe your agent might take the same view. <laughs> you sound like you could go on writing novels if you wish to do so. But if that was the sense that this was in some ways sort of valedictory to the form, what did you want to achieve by having that as the, the book end? Any novelist beyond the age of 70 is already haunted by, you know, when do I stop? I could probably limp on for another few novels, but um, I mean, this is a, a question that Philip Roth, for instance, answered uh, a few years before he died, where he just said that that's enough, that'll do, I'm done, he said. And I certainly don't feel that yet. There will come a time when I do. And so is the feeling I don't want to write long novels again. I might like to try different forms or I might like to write shorter works. Chekhov said towards the end of his life that he said, everything I read now seems to me not short enough. And th that is a you know, physiological feeling too, in that your vocabulary starts to shrink uh, when you get to around 65, 70. That, that is universal and there's no way around that. That's quite an ominous uh, fact that your powers are being attacked um, by, by physical decline. I'm just trying to think of people who've written very great longer novels when they were older. I think there must be some, wasn't there? But maybe they didn't write so many when they were young. They did. And Kazuo Ishiguro used to be obsessed by this and had charts around the place saying that all the great novels are written by people in their 30s, you know, War and Peace, etc., but medical science has changed that, and now, and given every writer who leads a sort of average lifespan, the chance to decline, and the chance to decline in public. If you start young, you do your growing up in public, and if you go on a long time, you start to do your, your winding down in public. Quite a responsibility to, to juggle that. You were an intensely public figure quite young, weren't you, as a as a writer? You're one of those people to whom sort of fame and success came relatively early. And I wonder whether in later life you feel the need to balance that up, maybe by withdrawing a bit from some of that world. I suppose no one's exactly rubbing shoulders at, at parties these days, but did you consciously choose to leave some of that behind? It's curious that the very odd fact, in fact, probably unique fact of having a father who's the same kind of writer as me and I think of, of 
pretty well exactly the same kind of weight. One of the unexpected perks of that is you become more and more detached from the from the public aspect of being a writer. And when I was young, I noticed that I didn't get as upset by bad reviews as my friend, writer friends, and didn't get as euphoric as my writer friends. And yet you put yourself, even now, very comfortably in that association with Kingsley Amos, with your father as being, even to that extent, formative. Growing up, I suppose, in that writerly environment may preserve you from some of the knocks, but it also means that you're... You're living in a comparative relationship more than someone who's son of a tinker, tailor or sword maker. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you want to be an average writer, you, you would have a coal miner as a father. There are dozens of writers whose fathers were coal miners. It's, it's a very long shot to have a writer who's a novelist. And I've said to the sons of writers I've known, uh, Dmitry Nabokov, for instance, and uh, Adam Bellow, when they've talked about their writing ambitions, I, I've said to them, you're too old, mate. You've got to start in your early 20s if you're the son of, because otherwise you get swamped by self-consciousness and every word you write, you can hear a hundred objections to it from various quarters. You become blocked by uh, by geniality um, it's so uh, you've got you've got to start when you're young and brave and stupid and just charge in before inhibitions begin to beset you there's something else you say about writing in, in the book that caught my eye certainly was not everyone can paint or sculpt not everyone can act or sing but everyone can write and I thought Really? I mean, well, surely anyone could make a sculpture, but just I think I know at first hand it just wouldn't be any good. So why do you think writing is in a different category to the fact that I could have a go at any of those things, but I wouldn't necessarily want to visit it on the public? Well, it, writing is different because it requires no training, no special equipment. You, could, you couldn't sculpt anything right sitting where you are. You'd have to set it up. You'd have to get a studio. You'd have to get a block of stone. You'd have to get chisels and chainsaws and all the rest of it. With writing, you, you could you could take a pen and paper right now and start something. It is the most democratic form. Even poetry does demand certain training and certain awareness of the past that, that a novel doesn't really demand in the way that the other arts do. Yet at the same time, there is expertise because you talk about being an expert on words, not just on writing, but on words. I spend another large fraction of my day, you say, looking them up. Give us an example of what that would entail. What's a word quest look like, Shay Amos? Well, you, you come across a word that you know the, the conversational meaning of and um, you look it up and you'll find some extraordinary things like the when you look at the origin of the word, which isn't a very good guide to meaning, but it's an excellent guide to the weight of a word and the flavor of a word. You look up widow and you'll find that it comes from Middle English meaning empty. Um, now, 
Now, once you've done that, every time you use the word widow, you'll have that in your mind, and it will, it will fine-tune your use of that word. That, that is how you become expert on words. And you, when you use the thesaurus, you're not looking for long, obscure words. You're looking for nuance and rhythm. Sometimes you want just a synonym of a monosyllable that has three syllables or the other way around, just for the rhythm of the sentence you're writing. And you have to keep going back from the thesaurus to the dictionary to make sure you're preserving precision. You know, the first object of writing is to make yourself understood. And then the second is to make it express yourself attractively, enjoyably. Dryden said three centuries ago, the purpose of writing is to give instruction and delight, but delight in the first place because instruction only accompanies delight. That was 1688. It's held up very well, I think. How do you feel that language, you've seen language evolve on both sides of the Atlantic? You still sound very much like a an Englishman in New York or Long Island. Uh, you don't have, as far as I can hear, at least American inflections that you've picked up. But do you find that your ear responds very differently listening to American English and listening to English English? It's something a lot of people write into our shows about, for instance, that we are very transatlantic, but they will either love or occasionally not love uh, an English phrase or an English inflection. I certainly would not have an American accent at this stage. I think you have to be very weak-minded to, if you're English, to take on an American accent or the other way around. But people do, right? We all have friends and acquaintances who have done that. You think that's a, a sign of frailty? No, I don't. I think it's a, a sign. Well, my daughter, my middle daughter, went to uh, great efforts to train herself to speak American. And she is half American. And then she's since abandoned that and just talks the way she used to. But I used to be I used to consider myself fluent in American because I had a year in America when I was nine, nine to ten. My American is rusty, I feel, but it's still there. And uh, it's difficult to have an ear for how a different version of English is spoken. I mean, Philip Roth, who, again, who has a, a famously good ear, when he gets to London, it's very corny stuff. It's a taxi driver who says, sorry, mate, he seems to be at ECE with, and he seems to be a bit sleepy tonight. You know, hopeless. Sometimes it just doesn't cross the Atlantic, your ear, in one piece. Now I'm sort of uh, loftily um, anglophone. Let's go, let's go back to, to the book and, and the narratives there. And the early romance, Phoebe Phelps is in inside story. She reminds me a, a lot of, of the Rachel papers, really. Are we supposed to pick up the references? There's also a bit of a tease that I suppose a lot of people who know you well and know your romance as well and your friendships will be able to sort of quite quickly sort of see through the translucence of, of this kind of project and others simply won't. Do you like that idea of a bit of a, a veil of perception across part of your life, shall we put it delicately? Um, well, Phoebe is different because um, 
I did consider making a sort of amalgam of, of various relationships. And then I then with a, a sort of onset of um, of freedom and confidence, I said, no, I'll make her up just as I would in a normal novel. And she became a kind of um, a, a holiday destination from all these real characters. So she was expressly not based, based on anyone. She's expressly not based on anyone, but she feels slightly it's as if there's this kind of experience that you had, an attraction that you had that comes through very strongly in her. Yeah, would that, be that, fair? W- that would be fair. Um, she, she combined certain things that have always attracted me. There's that sort of amoralism, that unreflecting amoralism, I've always found very amusing. Um, I would hesitate to say that it's a, a particularly feminine trait, but I've, I've never identified that kind of indifference to moral norms, instinctive indifference. To, men are always looking up over their shoulder, and I think that's true of writing as well. Men are just um, more tormented by history, and women write with a little bit more. A great critic said, when told of the death of a friend, you can burst into tears, but you can't burst into song. And that goes back to Wordsworth's, you know, uh, emotion recollected in tranquility. But, but women do, I think there is more song in women's writing, less tradition haunted than men. But, the, but when you talk about being amoral, surely that must be a category to which men and women could equally fall. Yeah, but it, I, they, women are more blithely amoral when they are. I mean, given that they're amoral in some sense. Uh, you mean amoral, not immoral? Amoral, indifferent to it. Are you without indifferent? Yeah. Um, so if someone said, look, that's a, you know, that's a, to take the, the language of the moment, that's a slightly patriarchal view or it's got a sort of, it's got a sort of judgmentalism towards women built into it. What would you say to that? I, I'm judgmental about women in the sense that I, I, I wish uh, I lived under a, 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 a woman leader. I wish all the great, all the major countries had women leaders. But that's a very different point to saying women are more likely to be amoral than men. I just wondered where that observation came from in your life. Well, I'm not talking about public figures. I've never been out with a head of state. Um, And that is a a different category, I think. Talking about mere citizens, then I do think that it comes down to a sort of moral confidence, really. Men are sort of wondering what what ballast they need, what qualifications they need. Women uh, go strike out on their own more, it seems to me. One male friendship, and perhaps uh, someone male who doesn't quite fit that category, though you might tell me that he did, is Christopher Hitchens, someone we both knew well, uh, you knew extremely well. Iconoclastic journalist, writer, friends and enemies across the political spectrum and a sort of command of of language in in his writings. It was extremely enviable and I think has stood the test of time would now, I think, be an even more divisive 
character. What what makes him so special to you that you devote a large part of your book to the friendship? Well, just um, attraction. And the first time I met him, I, it was like, it was as if I'd never dreamt that anyone so wonderful existed. Um, and with a fraction of homoerotic power that that all male friendships include, he made thinking and writing exciting and surprising in a way that some you know excellent journalists wouldn't dream of doing. You see, I'm interested in why this uh, you know you you talk about it almost well very tenderly. I think would be. Would be a good word to to use for it, and you could, of course, just write big essays about your friendship, publish them in the New Yorker or or what have you. And yet, you wanted to put them inside a, a literary form. And I was interested then in your relationship with Saul Bellow and his final novel, uh, Ravelstein, about his friendship and grief for his friend Alan Bloom, and whether there was also a sense of an homage to that tradition as well, and to the way that Bellow reflects on male friendship. Yeah, well, male friendship is is underexplored by writers, I think, because if they're triumphant friendships, um, you know, rivalry, envy, conflict, those are the things that novelists are attracted to. It's and it's a great a besetting weakness of the novel that um, it's very hard to write about something positive and make it vivid or even visible on the page. As Montalon says, happiness writes with white ink on a white page. It just doesn't show up for the eye. Something else I was wondering about when we look, if we draw out the lens a bit and think about the context in which we're reading books like yours these days and reflecting on authors from other times and what they might have made of the times that we're living in. You talk about uh, Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov escaping the Nazis, finding sanctuary in America, sanctuary in those days, being part of the American definition, uh, you write. Is it a sanctuary for you? And do you think America still plays that role for in, in the world as a, a sanctuary country? No, I don't think it does anymore. I Where I live in Brooklyn, I have a clear view of the Statue of Liberty. And on some mornings, she looks as she ought to look. She looks like a, the beacon welcoming you to a glorious idea. And then other mornings, when the mist comes, when you can't really see her very clearly, she reminds me of Ozymandias, which begins that Shelley poem. Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. That's all that's left. And with the inscription, look at my work, ye mighty and despair. She does look like the stub of a civilization. And I, I think I could say with some confidence that if Trump wins this election, then that is the fate of that glorious idea. And your optimism or pessimism in the light of where you see things standing at the moment in terms of the election? Well, I'm always wrong about these things. I'm wrong about Brexit, wrong about Trump the first time. If you just read a piece that crunches the numbers 
with historical precedent, then I don't think he's got a chance. And then I think Trump will just fade away. And then you think the Statue of Liberty will look rather clearer to you the next morning, I'm guessing. She will. Lady Liberty will shine again. You write a lot about the big beasts, Larkin Bellow, uh, Philip Roth, I know you have a particular affinity with and sort of tussle with, really, in terms of your, your relationship with him and his, his writing. Not so much about new writers coming through. Is that because you just felt like you wanted to reflect on, on writers and writing you had known or that you keep your more experimental reading and, and thoughts more for your private time rather than when you're uh, writing a work yourself? No, I, um, well, that's certainly the case, but it, not for that reason. It's simply that to read your contemporaries, let alone your youngers, your juniors, is a very uneconomical way of dividing your reading time. Um, you know, have you read the, this brilliant new novel by the 25-year-old? Um, and I, I almost want to snort with laughter saying, you know, why should I do that? If, if that novel is still there 50 years from now, I will, ha I will read it. What did you publish when you were 25, Martin Amos, or were working on when you were 25? Um, 24. Uh, <laughs> um, you see where I'm heading? Yeah. You would have liked us to read you, right? Yeah, but I wouldn't have blamed you if you didn't. So what were you writing when you were 24? Just remind me. Um, the Rachel Papers. See, I was about to make a guess. I thought, I, I'm not going to risk being wrong. So, but the Rachel Papers, it would have been a good idea to read that, wouldn't it? When you were 25. Yeah, as a, you know, for a laugh. But um, you're not... The, the only way of distinguishing the excellent from the less excellent is to look at the clock. Judge time. Is the only thing we have. Everything else is is just purely sub subjective and partial. Uh, you, if a if a writer has been delighting audiences for say half a century, uh, then there's unquestionably a good reason for that. Um, so th that is a good investment of your time. But nothing else will, will guide you. Got to ask you before we, we let you go, it occurred to me looking back that you haven't won the book, although you have been nominated for it. Now you say this is your last long novel. Do you think you'll ever win it? And if not, what should you have won it for? I don't care. I mean, um, I did care when I was much younger, but it would have simplified things if I had won it. But... It had no authority and has even less authority now. Because you don't like recent winners of the Booker Prize or because you don't like prizes? No, I, don't, I haven't, read, haven't read any of them for the reasons I gave you earlier, that they tend to be young. You don't feel a, um, a, a, li a literary push behind it. It's politics, it's socio-political considerations rather than literary you know, it's almost like the Nobel in that every country has to have its turn. I just, I regard it as, as a, a utterly external thing to me. I suppose a lot of people would say that they, they write their books because they, they do think that they want to be part of that socio-economic debate. 
I'm thinking of Benedine Evaristo there as a recent winner. I mean, she would say, yeah, that's absolutely fine. That is what I was trying to do. Well, I mean, I, I hardly recognise anything you're talking about. Not as a, a snobbery, a literary snobbery, just that I, I don't follow it. It may be the immunity I inherit from my, from my father and stepmother. Uh, my father always used to be very quiet, taciturn about his reviews. Jane, my stepmother, Elizabeth Jane Howard, used to say things like, I had an absolute beastly review in the Observer today, a real stinker. And I read it and, and it just unqualified praise until the last paragraph when they'd say, you know, if this novel have a fault, it may be a lack of modulation towards the end. But what of that? It is a triumph. And, uh, and that, that's a stinker in Jane, Jane's view. So your sounds like your final your tip to young writers is be very relaxed about your reviews. As relaxed as you can be, but your temperament will decide that and will decide much else too. So the kind of novelist you are, just as it decides your politics. Martin Amos, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And we'd love to know what you think, whether you're a long-standing Amos fan or new to his work. And British versus American English? Well, I'd hate to be the one to judge. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For your best introductory offer, do go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.